the joy is sapped not only out of your work, but out of other things too, because everything is flattened into one long to-do list and nothing feels like fulfillment. Nothing feels cathartic. It's just one damn thing after the other. I'm Jocelyn K. Gly, and this is Hurry Slowly, a podcast about pacing yourself, where I explore how you can be more productive, creative, and resilient through the simple act of slowing down. In recent episodes, we've taken a deep dive into my personal journey to burnout and back, as well as meditating on the concept of efficiency and how an obsession with optimization has seemed to invade nearly every corner of our lives. I wonder, could there be a relationship between this fixation on efficiency and our rising rates of burnout? The obvious answer is, of course, yes. But it turns out that there's a lot more depth and complexity underlying this phenomenon of overwork. To help me explore those nuances, my guest today is Anne Helen Peterson, senior culture writer at BuzzFeed and the author of a recent article that went viral called How Millennials Became the Burnout Generation. It's a fairly in-depth article, but Anne had me hooked from the fourth paragraph with the intriguing phrase, errand paralysis, as in that list of errands that's stuck on your fridge or sitting on a post-it on your desk that you just can't seem to do, no matter what. And when Anne started pulling on that thread, that psychic block against mundane errands, what she found was a trail of small decisions, actions, and habits that led her all the way into a cathartic realization that she was living in a state of burnout. In this conversation, we talk about how the millennial generation has been groomed to be obsessed with work practically from birth, additional factors that contribute to burnout, like carrying heavy student debt, and why we need to bring back mandatory vacation. But this is not just a conversation for millennials, because we're all impacted by burnout, and we're all impacted by millennials. <laughs> so let's dive in. You recently wrote a very in-depth piece about burnout for BuzzFeed, and you start out by talking about this idea of errand paralysis, which is I think something that we can all relate to. Can you describe this very modern condition? Yeah, the way that I think of it isn't that like you are unable to do all tasks in your life. It's more that that second half of your to-do list, the things that have low payoff relatively um, for you as a person, those things just keep rolling over and you cannot bring yourself to do them even though they are relatively easy. So for me, these tasks included getting my knives sharpened because I could still cut with them, right? Like I, it wasn't like I had no knives um, and bringing my shoes to the cobbler, which I could still walk on my shoes. It's just that like the heel was getting thin. Um, but then also things like replying to some emails to people who I really love that like I just... It just never became the priority. And to be clear, the other thing is like you are always doing the tasks that you need to do in your own job. So I wasn't failing as a 
as an employee. And, you know, I was trying to do a good job as like a partner in my relationship and as a person, like, I don't know, a citizen, but I could not get myself together to do those smaller tasks. Right. So you're still getting all the stuff done that really relates to work and career advancement, but it's all of those sort of little things that you need to do for yourself, right? Like also making doctor's appointments or things of that nature. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Things that almost entirely benefited myself. (laughs) And one of the things that I was struck as I read your list and was thinking about my own, and and I think you circle back to this actually at the end of the article, is that all of these things that sort of end up on this kind of list of errands that we find ourselves really unable to tend to is that many of them are things that really resist optimization or that are sort of emphatically inefficient, like, you know, filling out and submitting insurance forms for reimbursement. Yes. And some of them are things that cannot be done on the internet. So in my original list, I had registering my dog, right? And my editor was like, of course you can do that online. And I'm like, no, you can't. (laughs) Not in, you know, I live in Missoula, Montana. So like I had to, and I don't have a printer, which a lot of people, you know, got fed up with the fact that their printers were not optimized and ran out of ink every year. So just decided I'm not going to have a printer anymore. But that means I have to go to the FedEx store in order to print something off and then take it to the dog, you know, the dog registering place. (laughs) And that the number of steps is what made it difficult for me to actually complete the task. Right. Because we've sort of all gotten so used to this idea of seamless efficiency, right? And convenience. And these are, you know, the sorts of things that resist optimization. And then they also don't relate to your work. So the return is low. The effort is incredibly high. And that kind of pulls us back. So the key thread that runs throughout this entire piece is really about the rise of this obsession with optimization. Where, where do you think that comes from? Well, I think so much of labor and the way that we think about labor is how can we be more efficient, right? And so whether that is in terms of automation and mechanization of you know, physical labor practices, or now that a lot of us do what is called you know, like intellectual labor or mental labor, which is everything from, you know, uh, being a writer like I am to being an academic, uh, being a copy editor. Like, you know, there's so many things that really just involve you sitting at your computer and doing tasks from there. And all of those things can be optimized. The communication work, the workspace, you know, we have tools that are, are meant to optimize those communication that we have with each other, but oftentimes they end up creating just like another distraction and another thing that we have to be doing. And so how do you think that the burnout piece kind of connects to this obsession with optimization? Well, I think that a lot of the things that are sold as cures for burnout are actually ways to optimize ourselves to make us even more efficient. So You know, if you are struggling with too many distractions when you're on your computer, a lot of times people will say, well, you should try meditating, right? And that meditation isn't intended to really center you in terms of 
like just your mental health. It's more intended to make you be able to concentrate so that you can do more work for longer. Um, or even things, benefits in the office. Like, so I work at BuzzFeed, which is a website, but it's also kind of a quasi startup. And like many startups, our offices are filled with snacks and we have catered lunches and stuff like that. And people think that that is an incredible perk. And in some ways it is like, I, you know, you don't have to pay for lunch, but at the same time, the, the philosophy behind it is that the longer you can stay at work, the longer you can work, you know, like the, the less time I spend going out with friends during my lunch hour, the more time I'm working. Like, I don't even think of a lunch hour per se, you know, it's more just, okay, I go pick up my lunch and then you can go back to your desk. Right. So a lot of these things that are pitched as self-help, you talked about meditation, are in many ways actually work help, right? Ways to help us be better workers rather than things that actually um, contribute to the care of the self in any real substantive way. Yeah. And I think of something like Slack, which was marketed and is marketed as an email killer. And yeah, it's reduced some of the emails that I have received from my coworkers. But at the same time, it has created this atmosphere you, where you kind of have to be a colleague of mine once called it LARPing your job, like live action role playing your do- job <laughs> for Slack for your colleagues all the time. So you're always kind of checking in and trying to make a comment to show that you are working when actually, if you're working, you're not <laughs> in the Slack room making a comment. Oh my God. I love that idea of LARPing your job. That's hilarious. And one of the funny things, I don't know if you remember this, when Slack originally launched, their tagline was actually be less busy, which (laughs) not surprisingly, they've since changed. So I want to circle back to um, one of the things that you mentioned in the article, you talk about Malcolm Harris's book, Kids These Days, Human Capital and the Making of millennials, because you are very much connecting this idea of burnout to the millennial generation as really being this phenomenon that, you know, is arising and sort of been part of living and breathing as a millennial. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned him talking about this idea that we're constantly optimized for work, literally from birth at this point. Can you talk a little bit about that idea and how that unfolds? Yeah. So I'm a late or old millennial, which means that I was born at the very tail end of that, that junction between Gen X and millennials. And so I can, and I also grew up in a rural place. So I think some of the things, some of the trends that affected parenting and and growing up came to me a little bit later. So I, and most people who are older than me, have a childhood that is filled with memories of unstructured play And part of this was where I lived, but part of this too was just like parental attitudes was like, you know, the classic kick your kid out the door and tell them don't come back until the streetlights come on. And I spent a lot of time being bored and then trying to find cures for that boredom. Like there is a lot of, there's a lot to be said for forcing your kid to try to figure out how to get themselves unbored. Um, And there weren't very much in my town in terms of structured Uh, sports leagues or that sort of thing and, or competition, you know, like I played piano, but it was very much like you go to the lady's house and you take some piano lessons. Not like I wasn't thinking that piano was how I could get into college or could make me a more attractive college applicant, that sort of thing. And that began to shift 
over the course of really the 90s, I think, is when there became this really specific shift in thinking in terms of what's called vigilante parenting. This is kind of different than helicopter parenting because helicopter parenting is really specifically associated with like bourgeois, suburban type parents. Uh, And vigilante parenting cuts across race and class lines. And what it means is whatever your goal is for your kid, you as a parent will be vigilant in all ways to make that goal happen. And so whether that's like constant communication with your kids' teachers or, you know, putting them in play dates at a very young age that are structured and supervised or year-round sports with the hope of cultivating a skill that will facilitate in the admission to college. Um, all of those things, I think of it as kind of like the 18-year college application. And for me, some of those things came to bear when I was in high school, but not until that point. And, you know, even talking with people who are six, seven, eight years younger than me, they had a very different experience of childhood in terms of the presence of those those forces and how much more structure and optimized their childhoods had become. Yeah. Well, and you're putting me in mind of this example. I was on Twitter recently and I should clarify, so I'm not a millennial. I'm 41. So I'm like a little bit, just a little bit ahead of that generation. And I was on Twitter and there was this mom who was posting about her kid and she was like really proud of her. And she's like, look what my daughter did this weekend. And it was her 11 year old daughter. And she had made a spreadsheet of all of the things that she needed or wanted to do that weekend. And, um, you know, I don't know, she she hadn't gotten through all of them, but her mom was proud that she got through like, I don't know, 60% of them or something like that. And seeing that, like just seeing one that the child even had the idea of making a spreadsheet at the age of 11. And then, you know, that her mom was like, this is great, you know? And I was like, wow, I just, I really do not relate to that, like in terms of doing something like that at that age. But it seems like such a good example of this, like really like inbred optimization and efficiency that you're kind of talking about. It's become really like embedded in the culture. Yeah. And I think there is a difference to some extent between people who like order. So because mine, I'm just a type A person who I have a memory of like reading entertainment weekly magazines when they started arriving at our house in like 1991 and I would catalog them and give each of them a grade, like this, this episode or like this issue of entertainment weekly was a B plus, um, and trying to institute order on things that don't have a lot of order. And sometimes that is actually out of boredom or even we did like a six hour road trip during the summer. And I made up a schedule for my brother and I like, for these 20 minutes, we're going to read books until we get kind of car sick. And then we're going to play with our stuffed animals, <laughs> you know? So that to me, that's different than optimizing, which is like, how many things can I possibly get done? And this is more like, when do I, how can I control my brother? <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, and what the upshot of all of this optimization is, right, is this idea that we internalize the sense that we should be working all of the time and that that is really the thing that's kind of pushing us into this burnout epidemic. Absolutely. And I didn't, I started some of that internalization during college, but it didn't really hit until graduate school, which is when I came up with the everything good is bad, everything bad is good paradigm. And what, and how does that play out exactly? (laughs) 
So that is when you think to yourself, you're like, when you're in grad school and you're supposed to be studying and reading and doing work all the time, that when you're not doing those things, when you're giving yourself a break, when it's something good for you, right? Like taking a break, you feel bad about it because you're not working. But when you are working, you're exhausting yourself. You're just like slogging through your work. You feel good about it because you are working. So that's how like everything that feels good actually makes you feel bad. And everything that feels bad actually make you, makes you feel good within this paradigm. Right. And you quote this really amazing section of Malcolm Harris's book where he says, efficiency is our existential purpose. And we are a generation of finely honed tools crafted from embryos to be lean, mean production machines. Mm -hmm. How do you experience that feeling? I always think of time in terms of what I could be doing and what I'm not doing. So instead of being like, you know, what was great about today is that I kind of followed, (laughs) followed like what my body thought I should do. Like if I was tired, I took a nap. If I was hungry, I made some food. If I looked outside and said, that looks great. I went outside. But you know, if you asked me to, to make a list of all the things I accomplished, there wouldn't be anything on that. That feels bad. That, and that's life under this like production mentality. And whereas like if you discipline yourself to just sit in front of the computer, even with diminishing returns, you know, there have been so many studies about how when you just force yourself to work in these long blocks that you lose concentration, you lose creativity, you lose all sorts of things. You're not actually producing anything good, but at the same time you feel, it feels good because you are doing the process of working. Like you can say to yourself, I am working right now. Right. You feel like you're doing a good job. Yeah. Even if you're not. (laughs) (laughs) Even if you're just doing sort of a mediocre job, but you're still at your computer. Well, so it's funny you, you kind of described that day where you were really in touch with your body and then talked about how that kind of actually makes you feel like you haven't accomplished anything. Because when I read that quote from Harris and I was thinking about that, that idea of efficiency as an existential purpose sounds, you know, just so deeply non-human. But what I also think is interesting is that this kind of obsession with efficiency is, in my opinion at least, fundamentally opposed to this idea of finding your passion, which is also Mm -hmm. really baked into this millennial mindset, right? This, like, how could you really create anything of depth and worth if you're always optimizing for efficiency? Like, I don't think that's actually possible. Right. Everyone realizes that creativity comes from, like, dicking around, (laughs) like letting your mind go where it wants to go and, and trying and failing things. But that is not a very optimized experience. So somehow, you know, like those there, I've seen things that try to try to bring together optimization and creativity. They're like in the morning, sit with your thoughts and like write down everything you can think of for 10 minutes. Right. And that's how you're going to get your creative juices flowing and then jump into email and Slack. Like it's not, that's not how it works. Like that is a very, that's like creativity made in a laboratory. It doesn't work that way. We have to pause for a brief message from our sponsors now, but stay tuned because after the break, Anne and I talk about how burnout affects not just you, but also your coworkers, and why we should bring back mandatory vacation. 
This episode is brought to you by Twist. Like so many technologies, group chat was fun at first, and then, little by little, it turned into a dreaded workplace distraction. But we can't get rid of it because remote collaboration is real. We do need a way to communicate quickly and seamlessly with our teammates. So what gives? Well, the good news is there's a better way, and it's called Twist, a real-time group collaboration app without the real-time anxiety. Unlike Slack, Twist is asynchronous, thread-based, and mindfully designed to keep conversations organized and in context forever. And because it's not an endless conveyor belt of messages, you're not pressured to respond immediately, and your work can flow naturally. Over 60,000 remote-friendly teams already use Twist to prioritize deep work. If you're ready to communicate in a calm, organized, and effective manner, it's time to try Twist. Visit twist.com slash hurry slowly to automatically receive $100 in Twist unlimited credits when you sign up for a new account. That's twist.com slash hurry slowly for $100 in credit. This episode is also brought to you by Hover. Got a killer idea? I think we all know what step number one is these days. Go see if the domain name is available, and assuming it is, get that URL on lock. Finding the domain name that matches your passion is basically the first step in building your brand. Because if your brand doesn't have a website, let's be honest, it's not really a thing. Fortunately, Hover makes being the master of your domain easy. They have a mind-boggling amount of extensions to choose from, including all the classics, plus a bunch of new favorites, like .design for graphic types, or .how for the eternal questioner, or .love for the open-hearted entrepreneur. But one of the best features of Hover is that everything is included, so they're not always trying to upsell you. Who is Privacy is included with every domain for free, and nifty integrations like Hover Connect make it super easy to connect your domain to a variety of popular website builders with just a few clicks. So if you've got an idea you're passionate about, start laying the groundwork now by heading over to hover.com slash hurry slowly to get 10% off your first purchase. That's H-O-V-E-R dot com slash hurry slowly. You make the point in your article that burnout doesn't mean that you can't work, that it's more about the fact that you can't stop working, but at the same time, that work becomes rather joyless. And this is definitely what I found to be true for myself. Personally, I would say when I reached peak burnout, which is probably a couple of years ago, for me, I was working constantly, right? So the problem wasn't that I was not working. The problem was actually that all I was doing was working. And so I think a lot of people don't recognize they're in burnout because they're sort of waiting for some sort of collapse, but that's not really what it's about. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why I didn't recognize what I was going through as burnout. You know, I say in the piece that I was conceiving it as like an illness that you, you know, like the flu, like you get it, <laughs> you collapse for a weekend or you, you go on a vacation and then you cure it. 
And instead, it really is, like you said, it's this thing when the joy is sapped, not only out of your work, but out of other things too, because everything is flattened into one long to-do list and nothing feels like fulfillment. Nothing feels cathartic. It's just one damn thing after another. Right. Well, and and one of the things you also talk about is this idea that, you know, you're ostensibly working all the time because you want to achieve these certain things or reach these certain outcomes. But what happens when you're working in a constant state of burnout is that even when you achieve those outcomes, which is ostensibly the point of doing it in the first place, is you actually don't really feel anything. You can't even appreciate them. Yeah. And that I think is what's hard for people who have never had burnout to understand. It's different than exhaustion. So like, let's say you're a farmer and you go out into the fields and you labor all day, right? 16 hour day. And you come back in, you feel that exhaustion. You feel that completion though, of like whatever the task was on the farm, you could see what you did and you finished to a certain point. And yes, there's more the next day, but it's a physical exhaustion that in some ways, you know, if you're not doing 16 to 20 hours every single day, you you do eventually recover from. And the time on and time off, there is a clear delineation between those two things. And so all of those things make it possible to feel the the joy of completion and the catharsis of completion in a way that the contemporary lifestyle and the way that work has bled into all corners of our life, in our world, in our spaces, um, that just never arrives. Yeah. Well, and one of the bits of research that you reference in the article and that you were sort of alluding to earlier is a really interesting book called Scarcity, um, in which they did some research both on people who are living in poverty, so who had money scarcity, and then people who were extremely busy, so were experiencing time scarcity. And the interesting thing was, is that both of those states kind of had similar outcomes, um, scarcity of money and scarcity of time, right? They both had the outcome that you almost get this sort of tunnel vision, right? And and I think this is part of what you were talking about. Like you're kind of not able to see the big picture or appreciate the big picture any longer. You just can only see the short term and, you know, can kind of only see the next thing on your to-do list. And that's part of what also makes it sort of difficult to experience any any sense of joy, I think. Yeah. And also with that scarcity, you oftentimes in, in precarity. So not knowing what the next thing is, not knowing when something will end, not knowing when your next meal is, not knowing how you're going to pay for health insurance, like so many different things. It just, it creates, it puts you in scenarios where you make decisions that might not be smart. And that doesn't mean that you are a dumb person. It means that th- your psychological situation has made it difficult to make smart decisions. Right. Because it's part of the um, cognitive load, yeah. right? That that scarcity of money or that scarcity of time is placing on you. And was that something that you felt like you experienced when you got out of college, right? Because it's sort of part and parcel of the millennial condition and and why you connect that specifically to burnout, right? This idea that being saddled with debt adds this layer of precarity, which again, um, you know, kind of fuels this whole cycle really. Yeah. And a lot of it too, I think 
many, many, many of us amongst the millennial generation, we entered the workforce during the economic downturn. And some of us, like me, were like, oh, okay, so I guess there's no jobs now. I should just go to grad school. And then you saddle yourself with debt. Um, and then once you graduate, they're still not necessarily the jobs that you thought you would be equipped to to take on. And so it's just overwhelming fear. And the other thing, you know, the piece I'm working on right now is all about student loans and student loan forgiveness programs and how they're not working and something like trying to deal with student loan servicers. It, you know, part of it, it's not that like we are lazy and can't get our act together to actually call the person on the phone. It's that every interaction we have had with those servicers has been a traumatic experience and that there's no clear answers. They're not acting in your own best interest. Your interests have been misrepresented to you. So it actually, there are all these things that make making good decisions about your loans incredibly difficult. One thing that I thought was so interesting when I was reading um, your piece was you talk about the introduction of the term burnout, you know, kind of into the psychological lexicon. And I think you pinpointed as being the year 1974. And if I'm not mistaken, I remember, I think I was reading the book Average is Over by Tyler Cowen, and he pinpoints 1974 as the year that wages stopped rising, right? Mm -hmm. So that that was the year where, you know, things sort of just stopped getting better and better and better as the years unfolded. So I thought that was just interesting that there was sort of that, you know, kind of synergy with the, the word burnout entering the lexicon at that same moment. But that's a thread that you pull on as well, right? This sort of economic trend and how that contributes to burnout. Yeah, absolutely. I think that, you know, you have to be careful with like causation versus correlation and all that sort of thing. But I think you can make a pretty clear argument about the, you know, the moment when the harder we worked, the better things got, when that started to switch, right. Or, or shift or the promise didn't hold, then you get these symptoms of burnout in manifesting in more visible ways. And I think, you know, one of the responses to my piece is like, there has always been burnout. And yes, like in the article, I talk about how burnout symptoms that we would call burnout have been described like in the Bible. <laughs> but at the same time, the difference is that this isn't something that afflicts like a certain percentage of people or, you know, people in a certain um, vocation or just soldiers or um, a limited amount of people, the way that I conceive of it amongst millennials is that it is something that if you are in the workforce as a millennial, you are touched by it. Right. Well, do you think that it extends beyond? I would say that it certainly does. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, beyond, beyond millennials. Yes, yes, absolutely. And, but I think, again, it depends on, you know, are you working in a job that is also where millennials also work. So yes, if someone, like I think of um, our news director at BuzzFeed is in her forties, but she is working at a millennial company. You know, she is working at BuzzFeed and the expectations on her and on her labor are very much the expectations that are on the other millennials there. Or I think of people who are older, who were in grad school for 10 years and essentially entered the job market at the same time as many millennials were graduating from college. 
So they are also like their lives have also been characterized by that same sort of relationship to labor and to the the job market and to the integration of tech and, and labor and all those different categories. And then there are people like, you know, one of the, the best responses, the most important responses to my article were people from different backgrounds who were like, you know, <laughs> I am a black woman, like my, my mom, my grandparents, my great grandparents, like I come from an entire generational heritage of burnout where there has been hard work for little payback and no hope of escape for as long as my family can remember. So that's mm-hmm. too, you know, like it's very, you know, what we are conceiving of as a, a relatively new phenomenon is only remarkable in that it is new for white bourgeois people, <laughs> if that makes sense. Right. And so the, the sort of argument that you're making there is that if you are in a workplace where essentially you're working with or competing with millennials, what's happening is that kind of I need to be working all of the time mindset is something that you are just sort of compelled to adopt because on a certain level, you're, you know, you're working on the schedule with these people or you're kind of competing against these people. And so you can't really opt out of that game, so to speak. Yeah. Well, and you know, one of the things that someone sent me in response to my piece was that there's a, apparently a common uh, piece of advice from psychologists in Spain, which is that um, to ask, you know, do you need therapy or do you need a labor union? And so a lot of people who are from different generations are also dealing with lack of protections in the workplace, you know, just because you're Gen X doesn't mean that you aren't also operating in a non-unionized workplace. And I think that that's something that, again, cuts across generational lines. Yeah, absolutely. And I think maybe you touch on this a little bit too, but this idea of, taking vacation and this kind of new startup trend towards unlimited vacation, right? The idea that, you know, you can take as much vacation as you want, but when there's no strict parameters put on that vacation and there's no uniform times when everyone goes on vacation, that's something that really just looks good for quote unquote optics. But what actually happens is that then people take significantly less vacation or they take no vacation, right? Yes. And this is something that for people who don't work in workplaces like that boggles their mind. They're like, what do you mean people take less vacation? But it does become a way to perform. Like if you are taking less vacation, then you are working more, right? And so it's a subtle way to show that you are constantly working, you know, sometimes consciously and sometimes unconsciously just in the fact that like you conceive of yourself as so essential to the workplace and oftentimes are that there is just no way to cover for you when you leave. And then I also think like, I know um, there amongst millennials unionization is becoming much more prevalent and especially like within journalism. And one thing that I know, like a a request or a a negotiation point in for some of the unions that are rising in journalism is that, after covering a traumatic event, so whether that's a school shooting or a murder or the natural disaster or something like that, you have to, there, there's a request for forced, like mandatory time off. And the reasoning for that is that I think, you know, I, when I've covered things, like I covered a mass shooting and I went straight back to work and my manager said, you know, it's okay if you need some time off, you can take it. 
But the phrasing of that, right? If you need Mm -hmm. some time off, it encourages you to think, I don't need time off. Right. Or you look weak if you need it. Yeah. Or not even just, oh, like, because that's the other thing is that a good manager will try to phrase it in a way like it's not a sign of weakness or you take time off. But instead, what you're trying to do is show I am strong. Mm -hmm. And so you don't take time off because you don't necessarily think that you need it. Because the thing is with burnout and after covering traumatic events or after working incredibly long hours for a long time is that it's not that you suddenly like stare at the wall and can't get out of bed. That is acute burnout. But most of the time you just kind of feel a numbness that is similar to depression, but is not clinically depression. And that's something that most people don't understand. So you have to enforce it in order to make people like me who have been programmed (laughs) that to not work is to fail is a moral failing, is a psychological failing, you have to force it in order for it to become standard. Yeah, I think that's such an important point. And particularly for people who are listening, who are managers, who are kind of trying to figure out the best way to deal with this stuff, mandatory time off. You know, I really don't think there's sort of an alternative or better solution to that. I myself worked briefly at Adobe. And one of the best things about working there was that twice a year, once in July, uh, right around the week of July 4th, and then once right around Christmas, they would have the entire company shut down for a week. And I've never worked in a place where there was sort of a mandatory shutdown like that. And it was amazing how relaxing it was because it wasn't just that you got to go on vacation. It was also that you knew that, you know, no one was depending on you and everyone was on vacation. And the impact of that is really incredibly powerful. Yeah. I always, the week between Christmas and New Year's, I, first of all, as an academic, we always had that entirely off, which meant that I just worked the entire time. But, but when I was, um, as a journalist, we do have some of those days that you can work. And I've always hated those days because it felt like such an in-between time where you're kind of given permission to slack, but at the same time, it's not like an explicit permission. And so you just like, there's part of me psychologically that's like, I should be working really hard, but then there's no one else working hard. So there's not a lot of, (laughs) it, it, it just felt like this weird nether world and I couldn't figure out what my labor should look like. And it was incredibly distressing when it should have just been relaxing. I've also read that burnout itself is toxic in terms of kind of spreading from person to person, we'll say. So that if, you know, you are burnt out in your workplace, you know, what happens is, as we discussed, you know, your sort of level of enjoyment of your work really starts to drop and that this kind of negative attitude and probably also, you know, kind of short fuse and general lack of inspiration is something that can really spread to other people as well. Is that something that you found? Yeah, I think so. Like you, you, your burnout burns other people out uh, or exacerbates their burnout. And this is why, you know, one of the follow-up pieces to my piece was written by my friend, Jonathan Malasek. And he closed the piece with thinking about the fact that we can't just be trying to cure our own burnout. Like that is such an, an American and individualistic way to think about this. But instead, one of the most productive ways to think about it is not only how how can I think about my own, but how can I think about alleviating burnout in others? So what practices 
in my own life, consciously or unconsciously, are creating more of a burnout situation in my coworkers' lives, in my partner's life, in my family or peers' life. And I think like for managers especially, there's a lot of ways that you can think about whether it's enforcing mandatory things or instead of just saying like, no one needs to read email after 6 p.m., saying no one can send email after 6 p.m. So actually setting boundaries that aren't just made to be broken to show that you can work more, <laughs> but but actual boundaries, like that's an easier or an important way to think about how we can decrease burnout in others. Right. And also leading by example. So not just saying, you know, you don't have to read my emails after 6 p.m., but you yourself not actually sending any emails after 6 yes, p.m. as a manager. Totally. Well, and I had a real <laughs> problem with this and that like my former editor was always teasing me about how much I worked. And yet he worked, like, was just constantly staying at the office, you know, like he was modeling. I was trying to live up to his burnt out lifestyle. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. I know. Then you, and then you wonder like, why do you work so much? So at the end of the piece that we've been discussing, you are very much not prescriptive. In fact, you kind of describe burnout almost as this kind of chronic illness, right? Something that sort of needs to be managed rather than something that could be cured. Um, Even though you don't describe or offer a cure, you do describe a kind of personal catharsis. What exactly was that and and how did that feel? Hmm. I think so much of it had to do with just giving it a name and coming up with a vocabulary to talk about it. And that's part of why I think the article has gone viral in the way that it has, is that so many people just thought that they were kind of failing at life or failing at adulting or failing at, you know, work-life balance or any other number of ways that you could put it. And so, and thought that they were pretty alone or ashamed of that failure of not being able to juggle all of these things. And what the article did was not only give some language and give even just a word like burnout to describe the feeling, but also provide a, like a means to talk with other people about it. And whether that happened on your, like people posting it on Facebook or so many people have told me they've sent it to their therapist or to their parents. I have so many emails from parents who've said, my kids sent me this and I really feel like I understand more of what they're going through now. So that to me is an extension of my own personal catharsis. Like I felt like I was finally seeing myself clearly. And I think that others feel like they are being seen clearly as well. Anne is right. One of the biggest problems with burnout, perhaps the biggest problem, is that we don't see it. We have this sense that maybe all this working and overworking is about to catch up with us but we think we're still ahead of the game. When in fact, burnout already has us in its clutches. There's actually a model developed by two psychologists that outlines the 12 stages of burnout. Here are a few of the early stages. A compulsive need to prove yourself by taking on more responsibilities. An inability to stop working or to switch off your work brain. Neglecting core needs like sleeping and eating. 
Perceiving your collaborators as stupid, lazy, or demanding, and viewing all of your problems as being caused by time pressure or work. The list goes on, but you get the idea. Burnout is not a dramatic collapse. Instead, it's a turning inward, as all the little things outside of work that bring us joy are slowly eroded away. Noticing when your partner is thoughtful and being able to return that care. Losing track of time while engaged in a hobby. Experiencing the awe of nature on a simple walk. Work isn't everything, but it's hard to remember that if you never take a break. If you are tuning in to Hurry Slowly for the first time and you don't yet subscribe to my lovingly curated newsletter, you can sign up on the podcast website at hurryslowly.co. That's hurryslowly.co slash newsletter. If you dig this podcast, you're pretty much guaranteed to dig the newsletter. So consider checking it out. And now it's time for your final moment of zen. How would you describe creativity in 10 words or less? Uh, Letting your mind hang out with itself. (laughs) As always, thanks to Matt Susich for producing this episode. And thank you to Devin Craig Johnson for composing our original theme music. If you feel like this episode changed your outlook, I would love it if you left us a review on iTunes. Every review helps us find new listeners so that we can keep making the show. Thanks for tuning in, and remember to hurry slowly. <laughs>